Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous episode was with Dr. John Jaquish. Dr. John would be quite notable for being the founder of the X3 Bar, also a company referred to as Osteo Strong, which I have been into to experience the interesting benefits of uh, loading the bones with specific types of mechanisms and machines and such. Uh, really interesting conversation, interesting guy. He's the author of a book referred to as Weightlifting is a Waste of Time. So is cardio, and there's a better way to have the body you want. So uh, I was excited to get to have Dr. John on the show because he has some controversial ideas that kind of go against the grain of what a lot of people are doing inside gyms. And so I think it's interesting to feature these ideas for us to be able to chew on, just be open to varying perspectives. Before we start the podcast, I want to take a quick moment to chat with you about one of my favorite ways to add a little nutritional boost into my diet. And that is through utilizing Eaton Hemp's unhauled hemp seeds. Most of the time we're getting hemp seeds. They would be the hauled variety. I personally quite enjoy and prefer the unhauled variety. Please explain the difference between hauled versus unhauled hemp seeds. Think of white rice versus brown rice. Eaton Hemp's unhauled super seeds are hemp hearts before they have the shell removed. These super seeds simply keep the outer shell on the seed, adding the delicious crunch, the fiber, and loads of micronutrients such as zinc and iron. Plus, hemp seeds are one of the few only plant-based complete proteins out there which contain all nine essential amino acids. One of my favorite ways to utilize Eaton's hemp seeds is by throwing them into my smoothies. I'll particularly throw them in at the end, reason being you want to chew your smoothies. When you are chewing, you are releasing enzymes to your mouth that break down sugars. So when you are bypassing that mastication, that chewing process, by blending up your fruit, that is actually, uh, you're missing out on a key component to digestion. So I'll add them in at the end and then I'll crunch up my smoothies. I highly recommend y'all trying that for yourself. I also put them on salads and everything. They're, they're really, they're quite appropriate for most meals. You can get yourself your own bag of Eaton Hemp seeds by going over to eatonhemp.com slash align. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P.com slash align. And you can use the align code for 20% off. Again, that's Eaton hemp.com slash align e-a-t-o-n-h-e-m-p.com slash align align code for 20 percent off if you do not absolutely love their stuff they have a 30-day money-back guarantee all right that's it that's all let's get back to the shizzy with dr john jacquish Most people want their fitness and health advice boiled down to a meme. A half sentence is all they're willing to learn. It's sort of like, we don't want anyone messing with the forest. Okay, well, great. Well, then we'll have 75 years of piled up dead trees. And now we have fires that we can't fight. So now you lose the entire forest. As opposed to smaller fires, we can actually put out. So, and I, and I think it's, it's very similar. Like, cholesterol is good. Cholesterol is bad. Fucking... Our bodies don't make stuff that is designed to kill us. We don't have a self-destruct system. You know, like cortisol is bad. Well, until it's not. Your body doesn't make a bad hormone. I see the oversimplification. Like, oh, oh, I say this all the time. Oversimplification is another word for wrong. 
And we have a nasty habit of trying to make things so simple that, you know, quote, everybody will understand. Like I remember I had to, I was helping some writers that were doing something to put in. It was like Myths of Fitness and they were going to put it in. They did put it in. I probably shouldn't mention what paper, but they, they said it needs to be written at like a second grade level. And I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. And they're like, basically, we highlighted all the stuff that's too complicated. They highlighted like half the article. And it's just like, if you want me to get rid of all this detail, it's, it's going to be wrong. Like we're talking about the myths of fitness, but dispelling the myths with simpleton speak is just going to make it incorrect in a, in a different way. I wish people would have a greater desire to learn. Now, fortunately, like with my products and my business, I figured out real quick and I got a warning from guys like Dave Asprey, like you don't make a scientific argument to a fitness audience because in general, the fitness audience is just not intelligent and they're not, they don't have the patience. They don't have the patience or the ability to absorb science. And Dave was right. It's really sad because like, I'm you know, trying to show like, there's so much out there about variable resistance, right? West Side Barbell's broken, I don't know, 400 world records out of one gym. How'd they do that? Well, they use variable resistance. They don't use the same variable resistance system that I developed, but they use variable resistance. That's really the, and, and, and Louis Simmons, the guy who runs the place, says that's their thing. They don't do anything specifically different other than adding banding to some of their weighted movements. Now they use weights and bands, but the body doesn't know the difference. There is a ratio that one should look towards. You can have X at the bottom of a movement and 1.2X at the top, or you could have an X at the bottom of the movement and five X at the top. So which is better? I, I mean, I wrote a whole book, like weightlifting is a waste of time. That's what the book, weightlifting is a waste of time is about. But to get to the point of discussing what the optimum ratio is, you have to be able to understand that you're much stronger in certain positions than you are in other positions. And that right there is a typical fitness audience is just too complex. They will not tolerate it. So what I ended up doing was after launching the company and just seeing sideways hat clowns just kicking and screaming over this stuff, I was like, okay, time to pivot. Pivoted to targeting busy professionals. Well, busy professionals are interesting because they don't like their time wasted. They're busy. So the busy professional is probably not going to be the guy who goes to a gym for 10 years in a row without seeing any change whatsoever. But regular people do that all the time. So what ends up happening is these people, they went to whatever gyms for a couple of years and they're like, I didn't get shit out of it. And I had a couple of trainers and they didn't do anything either. And so then they read the book and they're like, oh, that's why I wasn't making progress. There's multiple aspects of the book covers of inefficiencies of standard fitness. And I explain fitness is probably the most failed human endeavor of all time. Because if you look at how many people exercise, about half of males in the United States exercise either at home, at least two times a week, either at home or at a gym. Yet 70% of adults in the United States are overweight or obese. The top 1% leanest people in males in America are 10.6% body fat. The best 1% is almost 11% body fat. That's pathetic. Like 11% is like top abs. You can see them maybe. Depends on your fat distribution, you know, but it's just like, like, if that's the best 1%, then stop defending what we've been doing. Doesn't mean it's not going to work for anybody. Everybody's got different genetics. But at some point, you have to go, wow, like 99% of the population is engaging in this. And what are they really getting out of it? 
And then you have to ask yourself, why has the medical community never really been behind recommending exercise? I know what the orthopedic surgeons will have to say, because I go to a lot of those conferences because of my medical device invention, my bone density product. So I don't know if you heard of OsteoStrong, but I developed a medical device. Yeah, I've tried it out. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. there's a location in Austin. That makes sense. So seeing all of these things kind of coming together and having people having to understand some of the science of really, it just took me to getting to just a different audience that would go, okay, yeah, I agree. Like fitness might not be the most efficient approach as it is right now. So let me read this book or let me, you know, read this guy's website. And right now we have a hundred thousand customers and they're all happy. Most consumer products have a 30% return rate. We have a less than 1%. Can you get a bit into just the science behind variable resistance training? I mean, I think most people have probably seen people with like putting chains on a bar if they're on a bench press or something or, or using resistance bands. So you're getting that variable resistance when you have more or less mechanical advantage as a lifter. Why does that matter? So it mattered more to me than it ever did anyone else because of the bone density work. The OsteoStrong devices just get you in an impact-ready position. So, for example, for those who are watching, you can see my upper extremities. I got a 120-degree angle between upper and lower arm, and the back of the hand is in line with the clavicle. I can either absorb or produce the greatest amount of force in that position. And, like, with my upper extremities, I can produce 2,000 pounds of force on the OsteoStrong device. Now, that doesn't mean I'm lifting 2,000 pounds. It means I'm creating compressive force in an optimized position so that I can influence the length of bone for a brief period of time. Irritate the bone matrix. So within the bone, the bone looks like a honeycomb, right? All these little walls inside it. You bend all those walls and distort them. And then when they spring back into position, they're stimulated to pull in minerals and recalcify and become more powerful. When looking at what people could self-create, because that's the way the device works. It doesn't put load on you, you put load on it and it analyzes that load. And it finds a very specific, accurate position for you to be in to produce the greatest amount of force. So like, it's very safe. So like, you can't break your own finger by squeezing a fist. So your own neurology is monitoring you while you're doing to keep you injury free. Now, as we were going through that, and especially when I did the clinical trial in London, some of the test subjects were physicians in the hospital. They volunteered because they like, oh, bone density? Sure. Like, I want to be in that study. And they would ask me, they're like, you know, we're, and these are all postmenopausal females. And so they said, we're pushing six, seven, eight, nine times our body weight, just, you know, in like an inch of compression with the lower extremities. How does that compare to regular weightlifting? And I said, that's a great question. But regular weightlifting, people go full range. So NA's database, 20,000 people. If you look at the data on loading of the lower extremities, they're anywhere from a beginner 1.3 times body weight to 1.53 for the average advanced. Now, 1.53 is probably doesn't seem like a lot, but we're looking at the general gym goer here. So when you compare that to what people were tolerating with the osteogenic loading with, with OsteoStrong, they're looking at seven, eight, nine times body weight instead of 1.3 times body weight. Well, it just so happens that the minimum dose response for triggering any response at all in the bone mass is 4.2 multiples body weight. So when you're going to the gym, you're lifting, you're, and you're somewhere in average strength, you're not doing anything for bone density, nothing. And, uh, and that's why a lot of people see their physician and they think 
well, I never have to worry about bone density. And then they get diagnosed with osteoporosis and they go, I don't believe it. I'm so active. Yeah, right. But you're not exceeding 4.2 multiples body weight, which is what's required to trigger bone growth. So that was the approach here. But once realizing how many people, regular postmenopausal population, that's, that's definitely not where most strength athletes come from. Also, these people have never worked out before in their life. No exercise whatsoever. And there, some of them are approaching uh, nine times body weight in, in, the, in this therapy. So I'm like, okay, we are dramatically different humans in our power output capability from impact ready range of motion, which is not full extension. That's what I just showed, the 120 degree angle right here. That's a dramatic difference from what we can handle in the weaker range of motion. So we definitely need variable resistance. The problem with the variable resistance research that had been out there was that the ratio of variance from weak to stronger range was very low. So if you use some weight and some variance and then put it against people who are just using static weight and the variance group, let's just say for argument's sake, gains triple the amount of strength in the same period of time over the control group, what matters more, variance or weight? Variance. It's the only answer. So why don't we just go to a higher degree with variance and forget about the weight? And then a couple studies. So that was my theory. And then I, I developed my product, launched a product. And then a couple studies came out that showed that the higher ratios of variance were producing greater muscular gain and force output. So there was a confirmation that I was totally going in the right direction. Sales been great. Everybody's been using it. Fantastic. Bunch of pro athletes using it. There's about 40 of them on the website. You can see pictures of using the product. The Miami Heat gave up on weight training. They even endorsed the book They're right there on the back. Yeah, I mean, pro teams don't like giving access to their brand, but I got a special exception from the attorneys at Miami Heat. They were like, oh yeah, you, we really helped our team out. And the priority of an NBA player is a little different than maybe you and me and you know maybe my customers. Like getting as strong as possible is not like, they're, they're good where they are. They're already in the NBA, what they want to do is avoid injury and continue to be strong and maybe get a little stronger, but mostly it's injury proofing themselves. And because of the variable resistance and the high forces and the stronger range of motion, there's a great study by Benjamin and Ralph's in 1996 that shows that compressive forces in these impact ready ranges of motion, they don't call it impact ready range of motion. They call it like just short of lockout, I think is what they call it. Like those high forces that are seen in those positions have a much stronger influence on the thickness of tendons and ligaments in relation to fibrocartilage uptake. So we're doing something very protective. Not only are we growing the muscle, but we're growing thickness and tendons and ligaments that weights never really were able to do because they couldn't get to those high forces in those positions. Did you say there's no improvement in bone density until you get to four and a half times body weight? Is that what you said? 4.2 multiples of body weight. Does that exclude like torsion and such? Say a person, it's, it's like if you're getting leverage on the bone via the muscles from say swinging a kettlebell or swinging a baseball bat or something, it's not just straight compressive load, but there's, you know, there's a lot of other outside forces other than direct compression, you know, down through the humerus if you're doing a bench press. Like, is that, there's probably, I feel like it would have to be more, and maybe it's not, but I feel like it would have to be more complex than just getting up to four and a half, or do you need to have four and a half times your body weight from those different pulling positions, or is that? That would be most likely. 
because what they did to determine that number, and this, this study has been repeated three times, all of them with the same outcome. They would attach accelerometers to people and then have them go through a series of high impact activities. Like, you know, they would play soccer. These were all done in Europe. So a lot of soccer. And then some gymnasts and some runners, some sprinters. And it turns out that that the people that absorbed impacts that were over 4.2 multiples body weight were able to build bone. Those who did not exceed 4.2 multiples body weight did not grow any bone. So what the torsion dynamics in there versus the straight loading, there are elements of torsion most human biomechanics. Like you're saying, you know, there's a rotation of a slight rotation of the wrist, slight rotation of the shoulder as you move your hand forward. That can't be avoided, so it's probably part of the movement anyway. But isolating one variable or the other would be very difficult. I mean, we would need to do like experiments outside of the body. When you're using the OsteoStrong device, or say like any OsteoStrong isn't exclusively isometric. You're going through a full range of motion, but it's it is going through the variable resistance as you're going through. Is that is that correct? How does the OsteoStrong work exactly? No, OsteoStrong is compressive in very specific positions. Okay. So the range of motion in an OsteoStrong movement in the lower extremities may be an inch or two, depending on how much bone compression you have. But like range of motion is very small. But the exposure to forces, because we're using the impact-ready range of motion, is incredible. How much of the strength gain that you're getting is attributed to strengthening the nervous system compared to actually strengthening, like, you know, muscle hypertrophy or hyperplasia and, and, like, specific mechanical changes to the muscle outside of just, like, recruiting more motor units because you're giving it more of a blast? Yeah, there's always, especially when somebody starts with X3, the strength product, or, or, or osteostron, the gains that come right away, especially from a beginner who's never lifted, a lot of that's neurological. Yeah, of course. Like you said, because like you're training the body to fire more muscle. So there's no avoiding that. And you can't really determine, I mean, unless you're doing like CT scans, limb PQCT scans, you, you can figure out how much change there is from a muscle mass standpoint on a regular basis. But, you know, one of those scans is like, 40 grand. Right. So, totally worth it. Let's not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's somebody out there that might want to fund that. I think one of those scanners is like a quarter million and I consider getting one just so I could, you know, show what happens to the people in my office as they're, as they're doing it. And I may end up doing that because it's interesting. And from your experience working with people from those limited ranges of emotions, how does that convert over to skill acquisition? Because so much of, of fitness is going through the full range of motion of, of movements. So if you're isolating specific mm. movements and you're getting this, this really impressive increase in, in bone density or you know, uh, the nervous system engagement, how does that relate actually to swinging the baseball bat or throwing the football or you know, sprinting down a track? Like, is there a disconnect or is it directly? Oh no, it's, it's much greater yeah. in, this, in this regard. And that's part of the reason why the heat was all about it. And when you look at how we train with weights, and how we move. The term functional training has been so overused. I mean, the f- function of a muscle is to shorten. So you can, you can call anything functional, right? I mean, just any, any bizarre like type of bicep curl. People are like, well, I'm shortening my bicep, so it's functional. Uh, okay. But I would say that the reason it translates is because our activities of daily living or acti- our activities in performance, we don't use a full range of motion under unilateral force. So like when you sprint, you use seven degrees of action behind your knee, but you have 180 degrees available. 
So that is in no way full range whatsoever, not even close. That wouldn't even be considered partial range if you were lifting. If you were only using out of 187, that would be minuscule. This is like the people who just unrack their weight and then rack it, right? People get made fun of for doing that with understanding because you do sometimes need a full range when you're training. And we do know that full range training is more beneficial, but the loading in full range training is very limiting. The way we lift with the same weight through range of motion. And, and you know who Dr. Peter Atia is? Yeah, yeah, of course. Podcast called The Drive. Yeah. He frequently says, I don't like weight training because it overloads joints and underloads muscle. And so the stronger we get, and like every strength athlete slowly nods when I say this, because like when you're in high school, your tendons and ligaments were stronger than your muscle. So you could go and lift, your muscles would feel it, and you, you know, you'd, all the force would go through the musculature. And then, you know, very quickly, we all put on like 10 pounds of muscle. We first started lifting in high school. Wow, this is great. Like, oh my God, I'll be 275 pounds absolutely shredded by summer. Of course, after that 10 pounds of muscle, all of a sudden, like, hmm, my joints feel a little tender. And then over time, your joints feel a little more tender. And that 10 pounds that you gained that first month didn't happen in the second month. It was maybe more like one pound or nothing. And then that, that continues because as we get stronger, our tendons and ligaments aren't getting any stronger. So we're overloading them, but we're not really getting the appropriate load into the musculature. And so there's also another really important point that has to do with tendon layout in humans. Like the people who can more easily put on musculature, these are the ones. So like, like my, my, my tendon insertion for my pectorals on my sternum, everybody's the same. But the other insertion point is variable. Most people have it right at the beginning of the bicep, like right here. But some people have a mutation, so it's down here. And those people have more leverage. In fact, there's a bunch of studies out there show the longer your tendons are, the more, more muscle you're able to gain because you have a longer lever arm within your own body. And I'm not, don't confuse the word arm for arm. Like lever arm is just something that is used for leverage for, for those who are listening that might not know what that means. When you have more leverage on something. So basically a person with that mutation, which is pretty much like everybody I've come across in the NFL they can, they have more access to the same muscle in the weaker range of motion than regular people. And there's varying degrees in this. Like some people have the insertion point be more in the middle, or some people it's just a little bit off of where it is. Now, there was a study, uh, I think it was like third reference in my book. There's a study that talks about how a quarter of people, like not like a lot of studies, they already take weight training people and they do a study on them. But this took sort of just slice of the general population that didn't exercise. 25% of people aren't able to induce any muscle protein synthesis at all in any way whatsoever, no matter what they do with standard weights. Hmm. Now, this relates to the tendon layout issue. Some people are at a very large disadvantage because their tendon's even higher on the bone and they just have very little leverage on the pectoral. So even when they work out, it, it's like, I got you know, I'm hardly, it's like I'm hardly firing, you know, some of the muscles. and when they train with variable resistance, that takes that advantage or disadvantage, whatever they have, out of the equation. And everybody's on a level playing field because the leverage you get comes from the variable resistance instead of your own physiology. So now these people who have never been able to really do much with weights, they take advantage of the variable resistance to a massive degree. And we see people put on 20 pounds of muscle in six months. 
even people who've been training for 10 years and didn't really get a whole lot out of it. And so like our forum, there's 30,000 people in there. You see that kind of story all the time. And then also they go and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this because I did want to fully answer the question, which is, does it influence their functional strength? And then they go and they're like, oh, I can lift way more weight now, but that's not what I train with. I just want to check my strength. Yeah. So like somebody like for my test was pull-ups. I kept on getting bigger, but I could do more pull-ups, which is supposed to be the other way around, right? You're supposed to lose weight to be able to do pull-ups. Yep. Um, and that's what was in the very beginning when I was just testing. Like, am I, am I truly getting functionally stronger? I wonder if there's an opportunity, like, so, so some, if you say if you are learning, say, like a muscle-up, you know, you could get yourself up into the top of, like, the dip position of the bar and slowly lower yourself down into doing the reverse of the pull-up but if you can kind of freeze yourself hold isometrically hold yourself in one of those positions i feel like it would be a really great opportunity to kind of overlay the principles that you've put together with osteo strong to be able to like really isolate so merging skill acquisition with these you know like the bottom of a leg press or some of the positions that you have in osteo strong i feel like there could be like a really explosive opportunity there yeah you and i would probably be interested in doing those type of experiments You'd be surprised how few people out there just people are just like I just want to look good with my shirt off. <laughs> like that's that's like that's almost all all uh, people I talk to. Until you experience the benefits of of reengaging some of the inhibited muscles or limited ranges of motions that you've had for you know the last twenty years, and but they've just been shadows in your life. So then suddenly you have that moment of engaging that posterior side of the shoulder girdle, your lower traps or your glutes or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, like I literally, I feel like a different person as I'm walking around the world. So to be able to be able to, to share those experiences, I mean, it, it's maybe it's. It takes a lot of experimentation. And I know uh, one group of people that really likes both X3 and, and OsteoStrong is uh, the muscle activation therapy people. Mm. because they're doing what you're doing. They're making muscles fire that aren't firing. They're, first of all, they're scouting the body for what's not firing. Yeah. Then they're trying to get it to fire, and then they're teaching you how to train those muscles so they keep firing, yeah. and they don't atrophy and things like that. And so because X3 lets you train with more weight and is much easier on joints, they like that because typically what stops muscles from firing is joint pain. Yeah. And the other thing that's, that's interesting from your perspective slash other people's perspective as well, but is the quantity of training. And I think that that's a really rich conversation of how much training is too much training, how much training is just, it's like, it becomes your kind of meditation or maybe like your avoidance of life or what, you know, like you just become a gym rat. And at some point, perhaps you would have much greater gains if that truly is your goal by giving, offering yourself a greater amount of rest. But it just becomes this habituation of just, I got to keep on training, keep on keeping myself fully, you know, inflamed all the time. But how much training is, is too much training? How much training is not enough training? Like, what's, I think that's a really interesting conversation. When it comes to optimum training time, because you got to keep in mind that, like, when we train, the idea is to adapt, to, to create, to trigger the body to respond. Yep. And so we want to go the most efficient path to have the greatest response to the body. And because X3 allows you to go to fatigue with so much force, here I'm holding the X3 and I'm pushing out so that like here I would be, if I were, if I were doing a chest press, this would be 550 pounds. As I lower towards myself, it would be about 300 pounds right here. And then it would be closer to 100 pounds when it's close to my chest. So I'm going through this chest press motion where the weight is able to change as I move. And then when, when I cannot get to that 550 out here, 
about right here is it's 550. When I'm unable to get here, then I just do shorter range repetitions. So I do reps with 300 until I can't do that anymore. And then my last repetitions may only be like one or two inches. So I'm fatiguing every range of motion independently, yet in the same set, leveraging the same hypoxia moment. I'm keeping blood from coming in. So huge hypoxic effect, really diminishing the ATP, glycogen, and creatine phosphate. Because I'm not resting. And I'm going to fatigue first with high amounts of weight with the strongest range. Then substantial amounts of weight in the mid-range. And then in the weaker range, I get to the point where I can't even lift 100 pounds off the chest, which is total exhaustion, way more exhaustion than you can get with weight training. So in that one set, in that one experience, I've gone to a deeper level of fatigue than if I did multiple sets with standard weights. So part of the reason that I talk about how X3 is quick like you won't have to invest the same amount of time. Now I do know I'm, you're, you're coming at it from the opposite. People like training more and that might not be the most optimal one. You're right, but the most optimal is the most optimal. And there's research that would have us go in one direction versus the other. And with X3, because the fatigue is so much greater than it is with regular weight training, we just have people do one set. And then how much break between that? Because I know it's, you know, certain say if you're training somebody and you're doing like really heavy descending eccentric sets where you're like really loading the person's nervous system after that you probably want to give them like a proper multiple days or maybe even a week before before reloading the system in that in that way because it's like it's it's kind of like a you know it's a big blast to the nervous system is it something that you do every other day is it something that you do once a week Every muscle gets hit every 48 hours. Okay. We know from muscle biopsy tests that within 36 hours, almost no matter what you do. Now, you're talking about the nervous system, which is not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis ends within 36 hours, no matter how crazy, inefficient, or shitty your workout is. Most would be attached to some of those adjectives, if you're, whatever the program is. So you're done in 36 hours. We wait 48 just to make sure because muscle damage of course is inversely related to growth so when you damage a muscle your body's protein synthesis has to do with repairing the damage not making you any stronger the adaptations that happen after that if there is time in that 36 hour window go towards growing new muscle so and this is part of the reason why like muscle confusion doesn't work it's because there's extra damage when you switch from one type of movement to another body's just not accustomed to it. There's no homeostasis that involves, let's say if you switch from a mostly pushing chest workout to all flies, you know, because bodybuilders will do stuff like that. And then, so they're like, oh yeah, I can barely move my arms. I must be growing. And it's like, no dude, that's just damage. You're not growing at all. And so that, that's, that's a big like myth that it's been dispelled in research for 20 years and nobody knows about it. Hey, you do. <laughs> Most people don't. Something else that I think is a really interesting thing to see, at least, is practicing at various different forms of blood flow restriction. And that's something that... I mentioned hypoxia. When you keep constant tension on a muscle. Now, because I'm so familiar with all of the research of variable resistance, it's almost not applicable to have the same conversation about regular weight training because you're pretty much, when you're extended with a regular weight, you might as well be resting because most of the loads going into your bone and your muscles pretty much turned off. 
So like when you're in the lockout position of a squat, you're standing up straight, you might as well be at rest. I mean, though you're holding a bar and it's heavy, yeah. but you're not resting, your muscles kind of are. They're barely firing. So when it comes to variable resistance, if you maintain constant tension, meaning you don't lock out at the top, meaning you keep the knee slightly bent at the top of, let's say, a squat, and then you go down to like, let's say, parallel, and you're slowly moving between the two positions. So you keep that constant tension. Blood's not allowed to come back to the heart. So you get some blood flow in. Most of the blood flow comes when it ends, but you're denying the heart any return, which is the same thing we see with blood flow restriction banding. But my point is your body can do this on its own. It doesn't need the banding. The problem with the banding is your body knows a tourniquet is around something which is why when you use a tourniquet, you have to use lightweight. When you don't use a tourniquet and you just use constant tension and you're using variable resistance, there is no limitation. So you can get the benefit of a super heavy workout, like my chest press over 500 pounds, but I can still get the benefit of blood flow restriction. And also keep in mind, the benefits of blood flow restriction are not local or systemic. Like, cause you'll notice when you do blood flow restriction for your arms, your pecs will grow more. Well, you didn't restrict the blood flow to your pecs. Why to work? Because it's a hypoxic effect. When the heart sees a hypoxic effect, basically a part of your body disappears. Like when the blood's not coming back, it's like, ah, fuck, we don't have arms. What do we do? Well, we need to grow some more muscle then. We need to make up for the lack of muscle that's not seen right now. So your heart can't have a line of sight on the muscle if it's not getting return blood flow. Therefore, it lowers myostatin. And myostatin is the limiter on our muscle growth. So by lowering myostatin, we change our genetic potential of how much muscle we can hold for a brief period of time. So that's why you want to make sure you're training heavy, not light, like, like you do with most, uh, with most blood flow restrictions. So like we're kind of getting that with the X3 protocol, but in a better way and without the, the limitations of having to train light. After the training, what is rest? look like for you and you know is it is every day an active rest day what is like does it is it relevant the way that a person the language i use is like the way that they inhabit themselves the way that they inhabit their body throughout the day so paying attention to the way that they're they're sitting the way that they're breathing the way that they're using like every every moment is fitness you know you could have the the story or the idea that fitness is a thing that you do in a gym but the reality of your body just like your body doesn't know what a bicep brachialis is or a pec major it just it has no idea your body just knows one you know it's like the, there's a, a poet that calls the, your body a, a party you know science calls your body what is it religion calls your body a sin advertising calls your body a, a business science calls your body a machine and your body calls your body a you know a party he says fiesta because he's spanish mm -hmm. But we have all these stories of what's happening with, with the body, but the body doesn't understand any of that stuff. The body is, is always training. Is that something that you think about, like your awareness of, of, of physical positions throughout the day outside of training? Yeah, it becomes a bit automatic. Yeah. You know, I've noticed, you know, the better my abs get. This is new for me, by the way. I, I, I had great abs when I was a sophomore, junior in high school. I wrestled. You know, that was a while ago. I mean, I'm 44 right now. So my abs disappeared after that and haven't seen them until I basically turned like 41. And there my abs came back and now they're, they're better than ever. And I got veins showing in my abs and I'm really happy about it. But I noticed, and this is almost one of those synergistic things, like the fitter you get, 
you, you start noticing certain. So I started, you know, looking at my abs in the mirror and I realized, you know, just when I'm checking them out, I, I want to contract them. I'm holding like a partial vacuum. Mm-hmm. I had a pinched nerve somewhere in, in, my, in my left side of my body. And I've had that on and off for, I don't know, forever. Just something that every once in a while, just like, oh, like my arm will just go kind of numb. And I've had MRIs and they can't find any particular hot spot. So just like, all right, well, whatever. Never found a stretch or anything like that. Anyway, so it started, you know, kind of looking at my abs and just a little bit of vacuum just as I'm checking them out. That partial vacuum, whatever, and I, I, this is a couple of years ago. And keep in mind, I've had chronic numbness in my left arm my whole life. Gone. Like two days later. Right. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I'm sure it'll come back. It's never come back. Right. So there was something having to do with my transverse abdominis that probably connected. You know, I mean, it is connected to the spine. Like something in there wasn't firing right and was causing an, an impingement. And I fixed the problem yeah. by just having my abs show and appreciating them in the mirror. Yeah. It's, it's, it's connected to the diaphragm and it's connected to the, the heart and it's connected, you know, like all of that. You're familiar with Buckminster Fuller, yeah. So that's like a tensegrity model. If there's contraction at any point in the body, contraction, especially as a product of like instability or dysfunction or misalignment, and there's a compensatory contraction, then that's going to be distributed throughout the whole entire nervous system. So I think oftentimes right. what we do is we, our solution, which is logical in a lot of ways, is just get stronger, just add muscle, needs more muscle. And muscle metabolically speaking is great. Cognitively speaking is great for longevity is great. But then there's also a conversation around ease. And so I think that that's like, if we can have that balance of the yin and the yang, you know, that the, the rest and digest and also like the go to war, then I think our war, we get more powerful in that, that end. And then our rest gets more powerful, but it's like the pendulum needs to be able to properly swing back and forth. Yeah. And you, and you need, it's like, you know, to, to have the primary movers, all firing and able to grow, you need to have the stabilizers. So I find that people don't want to screw around with like stabilization work. They don't want to build skills. They just want to be big and strong. And one of the best things about X3 is that it's a free weight bar with variable resistance. Well, when you do an overhead press with a free weight bar, and even more so with variable resistance, you've got stabilization firing all over your body. Otherwise, you'd collapse. You tip over. And so oblique activation, quadratus activation, as well as abdominal and spinal erector activation, and that, that's tensegrity, right? I mean, the more we load all those muscles, unless you're leaning against a wall, which you're not supposed to be doing, product, you're going to be firing everything. And if you're not firing one of those things, you are unable to do it. You don't have the balance for it. And so then you have to go to uh, somebody who, who can potentially activate that. Or if you read a book like Pain Free by Peter Goscu, you can probably figure out how to start firing some of those muscles. I know it's a very controversial book. And I'm not sure if you're a fan, but. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Goscu method's awesome. It's those subtle, like Agoscu and Feldenkrais and Alexander Technique and principles from like Ida Rolf, like those subtle, you know, maybe in those worlds, it may be called like subtle body kind of has a different definition, but those subtle aspects of movement. It's like the parts that we don't see oftentimes is the governing vessel or like mm-hmm. the foundation of the parts that we see. That's right. So if all we do is focus on the beach muscles, you know, or the, the parts on the outside, I think that there's a, there's a pretty distinct plateau or roof to that. But to open the conversation up into the invisible, that's when it's like, 
Oh. <laughs> so what, what I'm doing is I'm having people self-stabilize with variable resistance. So when they do an overhead press, they're holding really three times what they can hold right here up here. Well, what they hold right here is pretty much what they would normally press, except once they get over their head, they're stronger. So we can provide them with a higher weight as the band stretches. So they end up training with more weight. That means the stabilizers have to fire more. And so they're not doing stability work that they know of, but they are. And so I get, because they have the stabilizers, then the primary movers, the beach muscles can grow. What is, what is your, your rest look like? So, well, workouts quick, that helps. You don't get bored of it. I mean, the workout takes about 10 minutes. Yeah. So it leaves you with the rest of your life. Right. Right. It doesn't get in the way of my other, my other stuff. Of course, this is my business. So I end up talking about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't, it doesn't interfere. Now, when I first had a prototype, it wasn't my business. And I was just osteo strong is all I was doing. So I was flying all around the world, speaking at conferences uh, and opening locations all around the world. So I'd fly 200,000 miles a year. And I remember I did this trip a couple of times. I'd go from San Francisco to Chicago, to London, to Moscow, to Osaka, back to San Francisco. So literally around the world. I did that a couple of times, but I brought my X3 with me and it's 10 minutes a day. I'd wake up, do it. And then, you know, take a shower and get on with my day. And it didn't interrupt me at all. And in fact, it was really weird because I put on, I put on 30, yeah, 30 pounds of muscle the first year. And while I'm working with all these osteo strong people and they're like, what are you doing? Like, you're a different guy than you were a couple months ago. And you're in like way better shape, but you're certainly not working out. But they don't know. Yeah, I, I just did up my hotel room because I, you know, I, my X3 was living in my suitcase at the time. So I can always find 10 minutes to do it. You know, the, the rest recovery, uh, a lot of that has to do with the right nutrition. So I tr you know, make sure I get one gram per pound of body weight in protein per day. Um, I also only eat one meal per day, so that saves me a lot of time also. Are you paying attention much to like positioning of your body, say when you're like sitting at, you know, when you're working on a computer? Are those opportunities for you and your perception of the way that you, way that you, you know, exist in your body or do you kind of relegate paying attention to the body to when you're training boy i'd like to say it's the former but unfortunately it's that's okay <laughs> keeping it real here yeah I, I i there are times where i notice oh wow i've been sitting in just like a fucked up position for a long time yep. and you know i mean people do that and i i'm aware of it from time to time but like when i focus on some research well you know, kind of lean towards the screen and stick my head forward and get in that bad sort of position. But I think my, my traps, my spinal erectors are so strong. Like I, I never get any pain from it. And I don't have any weird biomechanics issues that I've triggered thus far since beginning the X3 training. So I think when you have the musculature, your body finds the right position to be in, even when you may habitually get out of that position right so uh, but i still would prefer to be better and more conscious of it i want to take a quick moment to chat with you about quality sleep most people do not get the quality of sleep they need to function optimally yet these same people want to optimize their health but here's the thing you can do all the right workouts you can eat all the right foods you can do all the right meditations and breath works and take all the right supplements but without getting quality sleep your mental and physical health will still suffer that's why I'm a huge advocate for BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. 
because getting enough magnesium is one of the best things you can possibly do if you struggle to fall or stay asleep. With that being said, you need to be aware of the magnesium you're buying as most magnesium supplements use the two cheapest synthetic forms and you need a full spectrum magnesium supplement to actually fix your deficiency and help you to sleep better. That's why I strongly prefer Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed and you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners only, go to magbreakthrough.com slash alignpodcast and use the code ALIGN10 to save 10% off when you try Magnesium Breakthrough. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash alignpodcast. Per typical, if you do not absolutely love this stuff, you don't notice a difference in your sleep immediately, you don't notice a difference in the restoration healing of your muscles, the general calming sensation of your nervous system, then send that stuff back. They have a 100% money back guarantee. So magbreakthrough.com slash line podcast. Also for a limited time, they'll be giving away their best-selling products, P3OM and Mass Enzymes with select purchases. So there's a chance you not only get 10% discount, but also get $50 worth of supplements for free. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast. Yeah. Do you do any kind of visualization with your training? Because I think that's another interesting component. Like when you look at most world-class athletes, they are, you know, before that you say an Olympic weightlifter or, you know, professional snowboarder before they go into the motion. And there's also a lot of interesting research that shows that visualization actually does have a neurological effect. Outside of visualization of just strength training, you've, you've obviously had a tremendous amount of success in your, at least, business life. It seems like success outside of business. It's not the only measure of success. But is that something that you have leveraged in your life or is that you know, a bunch of new age hooey? No, no, I do that. I've never talked about it before, which is, it's, it's a cool question. Like, I, I've been on 250 podcasts, man, and I don't get many new questions. That's a new question. Yeah. And I, 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 I like it because, yeah. Like, here's an example. So we have the elite band, which for six foot tall people, I'm six feet, it's 550 pound chest press and a 615 pound deadlift. That's the band that's an accessory. Not everybody, that doesn't come with a standard X3 for obvious reasons. Now, there's a good third of the NFL players that, that I come in contact with and, and do some programming for where they get the, the elite band, but they can't use it. They're like, it's just too heavy. Like, and you think NFL, but mm, they don't train, you know, they don't do one rep maximums. Anybody that thinks they do, uh, they do is just dead wrong because they, they they'll risk their career by doing a one rep maximum. So totally the opposite of what they do. They, they're training with lighter weight, slower, uh, and then they do speed drills to, you know, make sure they're not training themselves to be slower, they're training themselves to be faster, but they're still trying to get a strength effect. So when they start using the product, they get the elite band because they're like, well, I'm in the NFL, so I got to have the elite band. And then they're like, hey, man, I can't, I can't lift even one rep of this thing. And they're like, do you use it? Like, you know, I sent them a video where I'm doing 20 bench press repetitions with it. And they're like, what the fuck? You know, like, how can I get there? Like, you'll get there. And I tell them. Watch me do it. Now that you've seen me do it, watch it, stare at it. You, you might be able to get a couple of repetitions. You focus on it. Now, I, I'd say suggest 
attempt it and then go and do your training with the lower bands because you want to get benefit out of this. So you know, I want you going 20 or 30 slow controlled reps because we go higher reps because the weight is so high because that, that's a 350 pound band. So training with 350 pounds is fine. You know, that's not, they're not getting a week doing that. So they train with the other band, but once they see me do it, and I can prove visualization scientifically right now. Remember the four-minute mile thing? Yeah, the Roger Bannister effect. Right, Roger Bannister. Nobody could do a four-minute mile. Roger Bannister breaks the world record, yeah. does a four-minute mile, and then within two weeks later, like people were doing it all over the world because they, they visualized by watching him. It's good, right? Yeah. Is that something that you've used outside of just success with physical body strength? Is that something that you use in like daily life or what does that look like for you? I mean, it, it can look different depending on, you know, um, you know, I, I do that in negotiation. I do that in, I'm in the middle of a hilarious negotiation right now with a, uh, with a rap artist and uh, he wants a very high price. And I'm like, well, yeah, it'll be a different rapper then. <laughs> not you for that price, but you know, and I'm, I'm kind of going through this exercise of, uh, you know, when it comes to negotiation, whoever's willing to walk away first wins. And that would be me. So I'm, I'm going to get what I want out of this guy. It's not like, fuck him. You know, I mean, he's a cool guy. I like him. Yeah. I want him to uh, want him to perform at an event, uh, but, uh, you know, it's just like, yeah, you're got a pretty good idea. I know what you're worth to me and the price that you said. So uh, we're going we're gonna to have to reassess. Has, has there been any books or philosophies or anything of the sort that been the most influential for you? Absolutely. Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Fucking great book. Yeah, and basically, if you read that book, that is my business model. It was really bizarre. Like, so my co-author, Henry Alkire, he comes into work one day and he's like, dude, did you like, cause he knows I've met Peter Thiel. I don't know. I've met him a couple of times. We, yeah. we were neighbors. We, he lived down the street. He's like, how well do you know that guy? And I'm like, not well at all. Why? And he goes, cause I read this book and I swear to God, it's about our company. Hmm. And so I read the book and I was like, wow, like this is exactly my method. This is exactly what I do. And it has to do with discovering intellectual property securing that intellectual property and then explaining the intellectual property so that people can actually understand it. So, you know, like while what I said sounded really simple, none of that shit is, but that's exactly like what the book is about. And, and you know, like anybody, like if I get stopped at a gas station, you know, they see me getting out of my Lamborghini and they're like, dude, what do you do? And cause they see I'm younger and I got this badass car and uh, you know, they, they just imagine like I did something cool. And uh, so I go, uh, here, here's the book you need to read. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a research scientist. You don't need to go down that path if you want to be very successful. But here's what you do. You need to read this book. Yeah, that, that is my absolute best book. You're one of the few people on the planet that's kind of reached the summit of like your first mountain. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, The Second Mountain. Have you ever heard of that one before? Mm -hmm. So you, you, you very clearly reached the, the summit of probably what would be your, your you know, perceived first mountain. Was there a, a significant moment where you're like, aha, like I've, I've reached my dreams in quotations. And at that moment, if there was one, or maybe like, you know, some period of your life or something, did you feel any different or was there a letdown or dissatisfaction, kind of like the earth effect where astronauts go up into space and they look down at earth and then they come back and they're like, this is amazing, but they come back and they have this depression because yeah. now there's nothing else to achieve. And they're like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do from here? No. So there's a thing 
a mental exercise that we teach in my fraternity. It's about like the moment you achieve a goal, you set another goal. And the reason is a lot of fraternities have the problem. Like, were you in a fraternity in undergrad? No, I, I'd never. I made fun of fraternities. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. I did too. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was mostly because ours was just so much better than the, the rest of them. But right. no, we <laughs> so let me explain that. I, that that's sounds good. very prideful, like any guy would say. No, that. that's great. I support you. Be proud. I love it. No, uh, but I mean, like we did more community service than all of the other campus organizations combined. There's 100 guys in my fraternity and there's 35,000 students in school. And we did more community service than the rest of the school. Like, we were just a machine of like civic responsibility, raising money for charity. Almost everybody had a 4.0 GPA. We were just awesome. We threw pretty good parties. We weren't known as like the party chapter at all, which some of the guys were like, ah, I wish we partied a little harder. Yeah, but then we'd probably get a few more losers and then we wouldn't have the good GPA. So it's a trade off. Anyway, yeah. a thing we would do in my fraternity, you would not have made fun of if, if you had gone to uh, Sac State, that's where I did my undergrad. By the way, that's the number one university on Highway 50. It wasn't exactly the academic masterpiece, but I don't really believe in academia in general. I think it's a lot of nonsense hoops you got to jump through. And what you're taught is pretty much what everybody else did. You're taught the opposite of creativity. Yeah. So I, I actually, you know, I have three degrees and you know, I don't think much of standard education. Uh, I really like my PhD experience because you're taught to actually do some shit that nobody else has done. Yeah. You don't get to graduate unless your dissertation project tests a theory nobody else has ever tested. So you've yep. got to come up with something new. Love that. Anyway. Yeah, it's beautiful. The thing in my fraternity, and fraternities have this problem in general, excessive high-fiving. This is probably why you made fun of fraternity guys. So what happens is a fraternity gets to the point where they achieve a goal. Let's say they raise a million dollars in a year for a charity, or uh, they have a really great event, and the whole campus is impressed, and it's on the front page of the paper. And then they spend the next like year excessively high-fiving and toasting their success. And right. then they realize in that year, the only people they recruited were idiots who just want to party hard and get with like, you know, the good house. But then all of a sudden you go to do it again and a couple, like a couple key guys graduated and you got a couple new guys who really aren't there for the work. They're just there for the celebration. And then you're screwed. Like you, you're not going to have the same level of performance that you did before. So what you do is, and we go through this exercise, any time that somebody either individually or the whole fraternity achieves something great, you're allowed one day to pat yourself on the back. And then the next day, everybody in the fraternity is like, what's next? What's your next goal? And we hold each other accountable. Like, you know, some guy you know, gets into medical school and it's like, great, great. What's next? What are you, what are you doing next? And, you know, of course, what do you mean? I'm going to medical school. No, 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 no. What's your next goal? Like, you're going to graduate with honors from medical school? If so, you better get some of your books ahead of time and start studying already. You know, like, don't just sit on your ass and, you know, wait to start kind of thing. And that was a great lesson that we had in my fraternity because, like, it was almost like peer pressuring, almost like bullying into goal setting. And I really like that. Do you feel like you've reached a point of, do you feel like content or, or satisfied or successful at a deeper level than? than monetary success in your life? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I'm actually not a particularly materialistic guy. I mean, yeah, I, I'm a cool car and I got a couple cool places to live. But other than that, uh, 
I don't need anything. What do you attribute that sensation? Because I know a lot of, you know, what would be deemed to be highly successful, like ultra, you know, super performers that are mm-hmm. completely, you know, they're just a wreck in, internally. And they've, it's, it's, you know, there's the carrot keeps being pushed forward. There's this ongoing sensation of dissatisfaction or, you know, so how do you, are they two separate equations? Like, how do you address that internal part? Are they connected or like, how does that work? I believe the problem has to do with getting lost in material. Like one of my favorite movies is Fight Club. You work your whole life working a job. You don't like to buy shit you don't need. Like everybody should watch that movie and really pay attention to that. Like, I, I mean, yeah, did I need my Lamborghini? No, no, not at all. But I like it. So that's fine. But do I need five of them? No. Like, and, you know, people are like, well, you know, you get this other one. This other, eh, just fuck it. Like, I only need one. I can only drive one car at a time. You know, so like, like I put limits on myself and also just not getting lost in that whole, like, what is the next lavish thing I'm going to do? That's a really toxic way of thinking. Yeah. And I, I just, I just never really got into that. I try and participate more in like a lot of charity stuff. I know that sounds kind of cliche, but that's really satisfying when you can really help out more and write a bigger check for yep. a charity organization. You're able to do more. Bill Gates said this, being worth 20 million is awesome because you get all the toys, you get all the houses, you can sort of like stay at any great, you know, hotel or resort or go anywhere in the world you want. But he says, when I was worth 20 million, I was so happy. When I was worth 200 million, I just had more bullshit. It was the same life as being worth 20 million. And I also think the $20 million number is, you know, I don't think people should shoot for that because that's kind of an outlier number and not everybody's Bill Gates. But what he's saying is there's a limit to what will satisfy you and then everything else would just be a pain in your ass you know i i can i can attest to this like having multiple places you live it's just like you know you can own your stuff or your your stuff can own you you know all of a sudden you know you're calling maintenance people and gardeners plumbers and it's like fuck where's my time can i just sit on my ass and like watch a zombie movie because that's cool i'd rather do that so yeah so there's a balance and you know you don't want to get caught up in having your stuff own you how have you navigated that owning owning your time well just a decision i made i mean honestly i could probably credit the movie fight club right like, <laughs> yeah i mean it's just as simple as that like you know it's it's not like i don't feel like there was any sort of like sacred text i read that was like hmm gotta do this no when you walk into my place it's super minimalist like i've you know, great furniture uh you know, but i don't have any shit i don't use like everything is there is something I use and I, I see successful people sort of just collecting not garbage, but it might as well be garbage because it's just shit they don't need. Yeah. And so you just don't. One of the most satisfying things I do is, is cleaning just and getting rid of stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. Me too. Like constantly doing it, constantly deciding, I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't need this. And like people look at me like, I'll go on a trip. You know, I got a rolling bag that I check with my X3 in it. And usually there's a bunch of empty space in there. Right. And of course, now I have a fiance and she's like, oh, that's space for my shoes. Right. Which not why I had the empty space, but okay. But you know, that's it. Like she just, she thinks it's funny that I'll, I'll go on a two week trip with almost nothing with me, but I plan on doing laundry on the road. Do you feel like you've had multiple iterations of yourself or have you had this consistent 
version of self. Yeah. Like you always have to be looking at yourself and saying, what is the me that the customers need? That's a great question. Wow. I like that. Yeah. What about me is most useful to the customers? And so I like participate on our forum on Facebook, the X3 Bar Users Group. It's 30,000 people in there. And most of the questions are terrible. And you know, people just don't pay attention. They didn't like watch the first training video, so, but they start asking questions before they watch one video, which is kind of normal internet behavior. So there's that. But then I, yeah, probably every day there's like two or three really good questions. And not only do I try and jump on the new stuff, but I try and become enough of an expert on that area that I can speak to multiple points of research or maybe both sides. If somebody wants to bring up carbohydrates, I can have you be a carbohydrate fan. I could have you never want carbohydrates in your diet, or I could tell you both sides and I could tell you there's a way to get a benefit out of carbohydrates without having the detriment. And, you know, that's of course a longer lecture, but uh, I got to that point because at first I just want to simplify it and just say, just, just don't, just don't bother with carbohydrates. Not that great. And yeah, there's a muscle glycogen thing, but your, your body can adjust for that via gluconeogenesis. And I realized because I was listening, to the customers like there are some people and i mean this is a straight up dysfunction but if everybody's got a similar dysfunction or let's say if half the population has a similar dysfunction we probably can't call it a dysfunction we probably just have to be like that ah, fucking people yeah normal so they do right so when people started telling me i can't give up my pizza and i'd be like my pizza yeah like do you own the concept or do you feel so attached to the concept of pizza that you feel that it's part of your soul? Yeah. And I think the answer is yes. Of course. No, I mean, hey, if I were emperor, you know, I think somebody would just need to have their ass kicked for saying something stupid like that. But since I'm not, I'm like, okay, let me see what I can do to maybe make it so that people could still get away with eating some garbage, but maybe it's not so damaging. And so, you know, I, I ended up leading me to a place where I started looking at triggering hyperplasia by over hydrating what would be normal in a muscle and then stretching that muscle. So you get a pump and then you pair that with glucose. You want to try and get it to be glucose. I'm, I'm sure there's people that get some fructose in there, which is not going to do them the same favors as the glucose. But, you know, so they get some glucose and I pair this with a vasodilator and then a workout and then they do some, some stretching, which forces like a tremendous pump and then they're stretching the muscle which uh, as we know from bird models and it was professor jose antonio at florida state and he's like the number one protein researcher but his doctoral dissertation was on the stretching thing well, he didn't do it with hydration he did it on birds which have a different muscular hydration and different like tensegrity in, in the muscle they have much harder partially contracted tonic contraction muscles than humans do but you couldn't do this to a human in, in a clinical trial, so he did it with birds. So he had them stretched out so that their pectoral muscles were in as maximal stretch without injury position as they could be. Within, I think it was 48 hours, he'd see 140% growth in those tissues. Wow. Now, birds are different than us. And also, people who do yoga don't grow muscle growing, doing yoga. So stretching isn't it per se. But that combined with the hyperhydration and the workout and then uh, the vasodilator, so we have as much blood flowing into the muscle as possible, then stretching the muscle, the indications are very strong that we are inducing hyperplasia. 
And that's like one of the last chapters in the book. Also, it's funny. I say it's like an advanced technique. Of course, every beginner wants to do it, right? Yeah. Like day one. Oh, advanced? Oh, yeah, that's me. You mentioned the thing about my pizza. And I think the similar thing that people, limiting language people will use is, you know, my back pain or my addiction or, you know, and they, and they, they self-identify with these like ailments. It's, it's an interesting thing. I wonder from your perception, I would imagine from listening to you speak, like language is, is really important to you and you pay attention to it. Why do you think it is that people do that in general? Have you noticed your, yourself kind of buffering yourself or kind of hiding behind limiting language like that in the past? Um, and if so, with you or with others in general, how does one start to unwind that and like actually step into like their empowered version of themselves, free of the barnacles of pulling themselves down? You, you basically got to own what you're trying to do and you've got to own, uh, here's one, you got to own the challenges. I don't call them problems. I call them challenges. Challenges are something positive. Yeah. A problem is like, you know, I'm, I, cu- I just cut my thumb off. Yeah. You know, like you could call that problem. You call it a challenge. If it's a challenge, well, let's get that on ice and let's get to the emergency room right now. Yeah. So, you know, like it's just a better way to look at things. And, uh, the, the biggest defining factor there is like ownership versus victimhood. Yeah. And if you own something, even if it's some shit you didn't even do, like various challenges with, no, here, here's, here's one. So I had some challenges when it came to some customers who were using the product incorrectly. And so instead of saying, well, these people are just a problem, the hell with them. What I needed to do was show people the better way and why you want to do it this way. How you can't be sloppy. Basically, people are just being really sloppy and rapid with their repetitions. And, you know, you're not firing as much muscle. Like, and I came up with an analogy that really, really resonated with people. If you draw a straight line on a piece of paper, if you do it fast, it's easy. If you do it slow, it's much harder. And when you stabilize a weight that you're lifting, if you're doing it slow, you're firing a lot more stabilization muscle than you are if you're doing it fast. Now, nothing wrong with lifting with speed, especially if that's your sport. But we're not perfecting a sport in general with X3. We're trying to get as big and as strong as possible. So for that, you need all the stabilizers working before the primary actors can grow. So slow and controlled. And as soon as I made that video, like everybody changed back to slow and controlled. And so like I didn't see... I could have been a victim. I could have been like, ah, my customers are stupid. I can't do anything about it. But no, they just needed a, a better set of instructions. It's like having the, a growth mindset instead of looking at something right. as, as they're after me. You know, what's, what's happening? It's happening to me or it's happening for me. Or your perspective of the day's challenges is, dictates your reaction or your, your response. Funny you say that. I feel like everything happens for me. Yeah, which you you sculpted that story. That's just a story. Yeah, just like religion is a story, just like philosophy is a story, just like mm-hmm. everything is. A, it's like we're all authors, you know. And that's Jordan Peterson has an interesting program of reauthoring. I think is how he calls it. Interesting. I didn't know that. I'm a huge fan. I uh, I missed that. I got to check that. And that's the really interesting thing. It's like you you know, or Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. Like we're all the hero of our own our own story. We're all following a similar 
story arc. You know, we're all like living parallel lives essentially, but with a few different appearances. But like the core of it, I think is very is very consistent. And we have the power to write the story if we can have the spaciousness to witness that and then begin to take control. I think here's an example of exactly what you're talking about: the story, like. My fiance, she says to me, you know, like six months ago or something like that, she says, you know, have you ever, you ever cheated on anyone you ever dated? Now, of course, judgment comes along with anything I say at this point. So I'm yeah. like, mm, okay. Uh, you know, the answer is no, I haven't. She's like, yeah, that's what I thought. Because like, you don't really have like all the exes I met or like seemingly like think you're really cool. Yeah. And she goes, well, why didn't you ever do that? And I'm like, I never wanted to wake up and think I was that guy. You know, and I mean, was I in shitty relationships where women were, I mean, I caught them, you know, being unfaithful to me. Yeah, sure. That happens to everybody. But that doesn't mean I should go out and do it because I want to know that when I wake up in the morning, it's like, I'm not an asshole. I just want to say that to myself every morning. I'm not an asshole. Mm. You know, other people, yeah, they might be. Or maybe they're justified in, in what they're doing because they were in such a crappy relationship. They just needed something to derail them. So they could get on with their lives. I see that. And I don't think that's the most positive way to go. Certainly not the way I want to treat people. But when I think back on like what I did with my day, when I go to sleep at night, do I want to be proud of everything I did? Or do I want to be like, Ugh. And then there's an opportunity to have compassion for the so-called assholes because they're probably coming from a place of feeling hurt or scared or, you know, there was some inciting trauma at some point in their life. I think you'll resonate with this. I don't believe in any human emotion other than two. There's fear and there's love. Sure. That's it. Sure. Because all hatred is just fear. All anger is just fear. Like, you know, when you, somebody says, oh, I hate that guy. It's like, oh, okay, what did he do to you? Or what are you afraid he could do to you? You know, like that's, that's why you're saying that. And if you realize it's just fear, well, fear is simple. When you see it as fear, you can just stop being fearful. of it. Like, so, you know, what, like, what am I fearful of? Eh, fuck nothing, I guess. Like, cause that's not productive. Just sitting there and being fearful, you know, that, that's a, like crazy people like live in fucking bunkers, never go outside because of that shit. So I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to just live my life. Like, you know, what, what was I afraid of Corona? Like when you're during the lockdowns, like I have my own business. So I didn't need to lock the business down. I told everybody that works here. If you want to work from home, you can work from home. You know, it's not going to be a problem, but I'm going to be at the office every day. And everybody was here every day. Funny thing, I did get coronavirus, and then, of course, once I did, I had to stay away from everybody, which, you know, that's, that's just being responsible. And so it was funny because, uh, like, nobody was afraid of it. People were like, oh, yeah, if we get it, we get it. No big deal. But nobody, nobody. It was just me. What's interesting about all that is all, like, the philosophical stuff, it trickles back into our mental, emotional, biological, cellular, structural, muscular, tendinous health. And so if you're coming from a place of fear, contraction, resistance, bracing, you know, that's going to feed into the way that you sleep or don't sleep. That's going to feed into the way that you choose to train or not to train. That's going to feed into your willpower or your, you know, it's going to feed into the way that you interact in relationships, interact in your business. And so I think that the isolation of fitness to be just exclusively compartmentalized into fitness itself, as opposed to separate from mindset and everything else, I think is the stretch. Yeah, it's it's definitely part part of the whole story of your life and you know, defeating every demon or or challenge or whatever. Like like when when you choose fitness and, and you know, also taking care of yourself and being in in great condition, especially 
being an outlier. Like that's tough. It's tough to even, like I said, like most people don't even get in shape at all. Most people go go to a, some sort of fitness venue or do something fitness related and they get fucking zero results. And so it is it is very satisfying when when you conquer just a single aspect, when you realize you can lower your percentage body fat, when you realize you can actually have those abs, like then all of a sudden, all those insurmountable things that you used to think, I could never do that. You're like, oh yeah, I could do that. This is the thing that I think you would find interesting. I don't think I've ever mentioned this on here. Not that it's like, you know, some huge discovery or anything, but I've felt this for a while that our physical composition outside of, you know, we have like the genetic dispositions like ectomorph or mesomorph or, you know, whatever. But I think that we have this, like our self-identity, the structure of, of what we believe to be and what we believe to look like, our fat composition and muscle composition. And, you know, if you have abs or don't have abs or muscles or whatever it may be, I think that that our visual depiction of who we are has a major impact on the way that we produce ourselves. And if we have a perception of ourselves of being, oh, it's like I've heard with finances, it's like your financial thermostat. Like you have it set to, I make $50,000 a year. So if I start to suddenly make $80,000, like how do we get that back to $50,000? And I think it's, right. a, I think there's a, a similar physical thermostat of sorts of, of, of the way that you appear. When you look at yourself in the mirror, every time you do, you're almost like resetting back to your visual depiction of who you are. And if you can start to tap into that, I think it can have really meaningful impact. Isn't that kind of interesting? But then it's like rewiring your story of who you are. And then that informs your reps and your sets and your VO2 max and your nutrition and, and all of that. But we talk about the details because that's where we can quantify the science. But I think that that subjective experience is, is actually informs the details. Here's a technique that I use that your listeners will probably get a kick out of. In what, exactly what you're talking about, we always want to reinvent ourselves so that we are better versions of what we have become thus far. Like this is set, setting the next goal, right? There's, there's, you know, it's okay if I move my own goalpost. Apparently it's okay for Anthony Fauci to do it to the whole country. Nice, well placed. So I can move my own goalpost, right? I can, just, I can just keep on setting new goals and new goals and new goals. And one thing I do to help, to hold myself accountable, I paint myself into corners intentionally. So like when I was coming out with my first book in 2012, I fucking told everybody that I was writing a book, everybody. And that it was going to be like a total disruption to the bone density medical industry. I, I just wouldn't shut up about it. And so like after I told everybody, it was like, now I got to write a book, right? Otherwise you look like a fool in front of everybody you care about. I told my parents, I told my relatives, I call everybody in Belgium. I'm Belgian. So like, oh, coming out with a book, like, you're going to love it. It's going to be totally cool. You know, everybody who's in my family who's a physician is like, wow, that's, that's fantastic. I can't wait. And now I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm going to look like a total dipshit. So, and I, and I, I did that. I did that with this one also. This is my second. Yeah. And you, you, you paint yourself into a corner or I know a lot of bodybuilders, like to make sure they know how to get in condition, they'll just schedule a photo shoot. Right. Yeah. The and they have to do the whole protocol of dehydration and then adding in carbs at the last minute so they get hydration of muscle without subcutaneous hydration. I don't know how many of that works. I'm not about it, but I know they do that. And that's how they hold themselves accountable. So there's always, there's always a way where you can grab another lever that you didn't think you had and have more control over yourself. 
Thanks so much, man. I look forward to getting to share a conversation in person. It's always so, uh, yeah, doing these remote, you know, it's better than nothing, but I really like, I think that, that there's something special about, and especially now you mentioned, you know, like the, the present political times and such. I think that that's, that's another major component to mental, emotional, cellular, structural health is, is community. Totally. And the longest longitudinal study in the history of, you know, I think it was done at Harvard, um, started in like the 30s. And they tracked people's people's lives, you know, for you know up into like their 90s, and most of them were dead now. And they found the thing that was the strongest correlate to their health was community and connection. And once again, it's like it's like coming back to that. We're gonna have huge depression problems as a result of like you can't see people's faces anymore because everybody's wearing a mask. And so I wonder what's how we can take the same mindset that you outlined, that growth mindset, on that and say, okay, here's the challenge. Great. You know, it's like the Krishnamurti quote. I think my secret is I don't mind what happens. So it's like, okay, cool. Fauci, great. Mask, great. Vaccine, great. You know, like how, what's, where's, the, where's progress? Where's progress? And I think just even the seed of that idea, perhaps, you know, that will have a, a, a grand impact on people's, you know, mental, emotional, physical well-being. If we can say, okay, cool, here's the challenge, as opposed to here comes the, this political situation is happening to me, as opposed to for me. Like, how is it happening for me? I hate saying this. Like this situation has been magical for my business because you know people are working out of home. They're being chased out of gyms by the police, the city council, by even gym owners or other gym goers who are just, I guess people will call them Karens, like because they're just bitching about everybody else. Yeah. Uh, you know, tell you, oh, you need to wear a mask or whatever. And it's like, lady, I can't work out if I've impinged my breathing. Yeah. Like, so... Now everybody just wants to work out at home because they don't have to deal with any crap. Yeah. Yeah. This situation, like I hate saying it, I'd rather just be in normal America sure. where we're not tearing the economy of the world apart or, or abandoning 30,000 people in a dangerous country. But, you know, that's just me. Yeah. I'm sure there's some, there's some way that it's happening for is, is my hope. Where should people go? I get, what's, what's the best direction to point people from here? So I do the most on Instagram, but I have a landing page that has links to everything. It's drj.com, D-O-C-T-O-R, the letter J.com. People have trouble with my last name. And then you can find, there's links to Superior Exercise, takes you to X3, Superior Nutrition, takes you to Portagen. Uh, and then my Instagram, YouTube. Like I said, I do the most on Instagram. Love it, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing today. Thank you so much for making time to do it. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, you can share it on the gram. You can tag me at Align Podcast. You can also tag Dr. John over at Dr. Jakewish on Instagram. He's got something like over a million followers on there. So reasonable chance that he or I will reshare your post. And it's always sweet to see what you guys are into, which parts you like of the podcast. And just greatly appreciate y'all tuning in and sharing and hopefully implementing some of the information that you gathered from this. If you have grabbed the book, The Aligned Method, that is stupendous, very kind. I hope it has been supportive in your life. And that's it. That's all. I hope you guys are having an excellent week and look forward to sharing another conversation with you in a few days.